You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Amen. Well, I don't know if I've told you much of the early part of me and Kelly's uh, relationship, but uh, if you didn't know anything about it, you should know it was a really uh, just crazy time for us. We met at Texas A&M. Any Aggies in here? Yep. Oh, wow. They were on the first service. Fair enough. Uh, We met at A&M. And uh, I was studying history and philosophy because I hate making money. And uh, Kelly was studying finance because Jesus loves me. And uh, we came together and uh, it was in the middle of our dating experience that uh, a strange thing happened to me. I wound up getting a record contract. So I was on this trajectory to, to be uh, like a school teacher, I guess, and, and, and then I got a record deal. So the whole sort of trajectory and course of our life together went from this to that. It totally changed for us. And uh, we spent the, the, the first year of our marriage full-time in school and married and touring every weekend. Kelly was taking 19 hours a semester. I was doing 16 hours. And then every weekend we'd get on a plane and we'd fly around the country, sometimes around the world. Easter weekend uh, one, one year, we left class Thursday, flew to Australia, did a 30 minute concert, and then got on the plane and flew home. If that wasn't weird enough, it was Easter weekend, so we flew over the international dateline that weekend. So we had no Friday and two Sundays coming back. So it was like Jesus never died, but he rose twice and (laughs) damaged theology for me in some really profound ways. But that was like the, the flavor of college for us. Then we graduate, we're out of college, and we just hit the road, man. We are on tour after tour after tour together just doing this thing. We're living literally on, on, on tour buses, sleeping in these little coffin slots in a wall surrounded by 10 other human beings. It was very romantic. And uh, it just did that for years. And to kind of give you a sense of like, is this like just something you kind of did. No, we did this, did this. 2008 for our taxes, we had to calculate how many days we were gone, and we were on the road 265 days just in 2008. So we were just always doing that thing. And, and uh, usually when I, I tell people our story, I, I'm usually met with a lot of like, dude, how did you survive that? Like, how did you Like that sounds so crazy to me, like never being settled, always being gone, never being home. But the answer I give them is is always the same. I I was gone from my house, but I wasn't gone from home, right? Like I was with the person who made the house that we had be a place I wanted to be at, right? So when I'm on the road with Kelly, I, that, that was home for me. And, and the reality is, whether we're in uh, you know, Australia or New York or someplace luxurious like College Station, Texas, all these places that we were going never felt unsettled or not like home for me because we knew something. We understood that home was more about a person than it was a place. Home is a person more than it's a place. And we, we know this from experience, right? We, we know this from the Bible. Solomon teaches us this, right? Uh, Proverbs 25, 24, right? It is better to live in a corner of a roof than with a contentious woman. <laughs> okay, we'll have to talk about that later. Uh, what does he mean? He mean, I could live in a palace, but if this thing isn't working, sweetie, 
right? This is just not home. I'd rather be over there on the corner of the roof, right? I mean, you know this from experience, right? What, what's the, the thing that makes the places we're at sweeter? It's the people we're around, isn't it? I mean, that's why I moved up to Dallas from Houston eight years ago, was to be around a group of people that we wanted to do life with. Home is a person more than it's a place. Now I say this because this gets right to the heart of a question that sort of courses through every page of your Bible. And the question is this, why are you here? Right, like what? Why were you made? Why do you exist? Why are you here? The answer that the Bible provides to that question is this, you are here to be at home with God. If, you, if you're wondering like what the big existential like why do I exist question is, that's the answer. You, are, you exist to be at home with God. And, and look, maybe you're like um, a lot of folks who, who the Bible just feels to you like a jumbled book of like incongruous, unrelated content, right? Like when you read it, that's your experience. If you wanted one idea that could sort of untangle the knot that is your understanding of, of this book, it's that sentence, you were made to be at home with God. That's why you were made. All of our joy is ultimately found in that being the case, right? All of our, our drama and our sin comes from that not being the case in our life. This is the reality for us, and, and that is what the Bible, in one way or another, is dealing with on every page, the truth of it, or the loss of it, or the recovery of it, but that is the movement of all of Scripture. And I wanna show you what I, I mean this morning. Um, this morning, we, I'm gonna attempt to trace this thread through the entire Bible, cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, and I plan on giving you four applications at the end. If I do this, you can know there's a God in heaven, okay? Uh, it will be a, a almost Christmas miracle. Um, so so let's take a shot at it. We're gonna start uh, at the very beginning. Very good place to start. If you want to trace this storyline of being at home with God, the first place you need to go to is the beginning. Just go to the first two chapters of your Bible, right? And, you, and you're gonna see this bear out. What's happening in the first part of your Bible? Well, a creation account's happening, right? God is creating something, and during that time, God is preparing a place, a garden called Eden. And he's making a people at the same time to dwell in that place, Adam and Eve. And then on the seventh day, what does God do? What does he do? He, he moves in. That's what the seven days is about. He moves into the garden. He settles among his people. And for this painfully brief moment in human history, all of mankind is at home with God. There's only two of them. But, but they're at home with God. And by home, I mean two things. That there's access and intimacy. That there's access and intimacy. There's access. Uh, so Genesis uh, 3, 8. Uh, we, we know this verse where it says that the Lord walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Right? God was present among his people in a profound way. Can you imagine? Just imagine. You're in the garden. You're Adam or you're Eve and you're walking. And God is walking with you. I mean, there is like crazy access there to this being. Access is what we get, but we don't just get access, we get 
intimacy in Eden. It's, it's interesting, I don't know if you've noticed this. If you uh, read Genesis 1, Moses refers to the creator of the entire uh, chapter as Elohim, which we translate to be God. God created, God made, God separated, God did. He uses that word over and over and over. And then something really unique happens. You turn the page, you get to Genesis 2, he makes man, and what happens? The title changes. Have you ever noticed that? It goes from Elohim to Yahweh Elohim, from God to the Lord God. All of a sudden, we get God's personal name introduced, his covenantal name, his relational name. I'm not just big cosmic God to you, I'm Yahweh, I'm the Lord. It would be like Queen Elizabeth II looking at her subjects and saying, hey, call me Lizzie, right? That's what it would feel like. So we see we have, we have access to God, we have intimacy with him, and Eden was that rendezvous point. It was the point where God and man connected. Now, ancient cultures had a word for this place, this place where God connected himself with man, and they would have called it a temple, a temple. So, so think about this. In a real sense, it, it, this is an appropriate way for you to think about the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was God's first temple where he met with Adam. There was access and there was intimacy. You're near to me and you know me. That's what's happening in Eden. That was Eden and it was home. Do you see that? It was home. Now we need to see this in Eden first so that we can feel the sting of what was lost. Because if you know your Bible at all, you know you're gonna turn one more page and all of it's gone. All of what they had is gone when our first parents fall. Adam and Eve rebel against God. They stiff arm him. They stand in God's place instead. They take the fruit. They, they remove themselves from God. And so God brings a judgment on them. And that judgment is you're out. You're out. You lose this. Uh, Genesis 3, 23 and 24. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they're, they're driven out of the garden. But, but they're not just driven out of the garden. You, you see this, right? They're driven out of God's presence. Access is gone. Intimacy is gone. That's all gone, and in a moment, they lose the very thing they were created for, home with him. They lose it. I, I wonder, as I'm thinking about this, how, how, how you think about sin. How, how do you think about your own sin? Or let me put it a different way. What's the, what is the worst part about sin for you? Have you ever just asked yourself, like, what's the worst part about it? Is it is it that sin just makes life really hard? That would be a true sentence, right? The, the, the Bible teaches us that. Psalm 73 is all about the sin makes life hard, man. Makes difficulty for you. It, is it that it hurts people that, that you love? 
It does that too, right? If you cheat on your spouse, it will damage and obliterate relationships around you, leaving just a wake of chaos. Sin brings harm to those we love. Is that the worst part about sin for you? Listen, those are bad things, but if either of those are the way that you answer that question, you've missed it. You know what the worst part about sin is? The worst part about sin is it separates us from the one we were made for, that we lose home with him. It takes away our home, and that's what our first parents felt that day. That's what they felt. They rebelled against God, and they lost their home with him. They're they're out of the garden, and they can't ever return on threat of death. Remember the cherubim with the flaming sword? There's no going back to that world. This is an immeasurably sad day in the life of the world. You feel that? And and right here, right at the end of Genesis 3, a, a question starts brewing. A question comes up in probably their hearts, it should certainly come up in your heart as you're reading this text, the question that doesn't get resolved really for 47 more chapters of the book of Genesis, and it's this. Where's home now? Where's home? Where's the, where's the rendezvous point where, where God meets with us? Like for, for hundreds of years, this doesn't get solved for God's people. Now, he has interactions with folks, right? With Noah and and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. He's interacting with them. But the issue of like where home is, that's not settled for hundreds of years. In fact, you close the book of Genesis and you haven't got your answer yet until you get to Exodus and you meet a man named Moses. And with Moses, God starts doing something new. So after he, he rescues the Jews from Egypt and he brings them to the desert, he establishes a home for them, a, a, a meeting place for the people of God, and it's called the tabernacle. You guys heard that before, the tabernacle? <clears throat> I, wanna, um, I wanna challenge uh, something Rodney said uh, last week in his sermon. Uh, I know it's a poor form to do that uh, with your pastor, but I'm up here and he's not right now, so. <laughs> Uh, Rodney said last week that uh, Leviticus is where Bible reading plans go to die. Uh, I disagree. I think Exodus 25 is where Bible reading plans go to die because that's the place where we meet the temple and its construction and all of the things around it. And most of us, when we get there, we are out, bro, right? That's usually, in, in my experience, where it ends. But there's, there's no way to overstate this. It's a huge deal in your Bible. If you wanna understand what's happening in the Bible, you need to understand what's happening in Exodus with the tabernacle. To give you kind of a perspective of what I mean, uh, the creation of the universe gets two chapters in your Bible. The creation of the tabernacle gets 50 chapters in your Bible, right? So just by real estate alone, it's a very big deal to God. It's design, it's layout, it's utensils, who can enter, how they enter, what they do when they enter. This matters a lot to God. It was this, the tabernacle was a, a rectangular structure. Uh, it was mobile, it was made out of wood and fabrics and things like that, so it could be easily like uh, collapsed and moved to the next location as the Jews made their way through the desert. It was like a, 
It was like the first set up teardown church, okay? That's what this, it was, it was, it was the first nine years of Stonegate, but with like a lot more gold, okay? That's, that's what you should think about with this. Uh, and uh, uh, what was the tabernacle doing though? Like what, what was its purpose? Well, it was doing this, it was providing a new rendezvous point right? It was providing a new place of meeting where God and man could connect. It was functioning like a a second kind of Eden, right? And and even its design spoke to that. I I don't know if you've ever caught this when you've read the the, the scripture, but uh, the tabernacle, every time it was constructed, it was was set up in such a way that its entry point faced east. Now, why does that matter? Well, which way were Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden? in Genesis 3, to the east. The cherubim is guarding the east. The flaming sword is blocking the east entrance. And so every time the tabernacle set up, it's a parable to the people of Israel, kind of like God saying, the same way you went out is the way you're coming back in. You're coming back in to my presence from the east. Do you see that? That's, what, that's why the c- temple was constructed the way it was. It was like Eden 2.0, but but it kind of wasn't, right? Like, because it's not the same. Like, it's not fair to just say, oh, it's this, the same thing. It was a v- very different moment in the life of God's people. In Eden, there was innocence, right? But, but, but now there's, there's a loss of innocence. Now there's guilt. Now there's sin. We are full of sin, and I don't know if you know this or not, but a holy God cannot mingle with sin. And listen, I, I, modern folks don't like talking about it like this. We don't like conceiving of God like that. We, we're really big fans of like the God is love God. We can get down with that God all day. But like the God is holy God. He's separate, he's pure, he's, he's undefiled, he's uncontaminated. We don't like that version of him. But God in scripture is both of those things at the same time. And so it's really important for the rest of this to make sense. It's really important you feel this right now. You don't just roll up on God. That's not how it works. It has never worked like that. It never will work like that. I, I know we don't like to hear that, right? We, uh, we like to contrive of God as like being like super cool with us and like he just sees us as like adorable and like a little misunderstood, like an angsty tween girl, like, you know, God gets me. He doesn't get you. He, he has a problem with your sin. And in fact, for him to even interact with you, he has to deal with your sin. It, it is not something that God has ever winked at in the history of the world. And so for us to come back into communion with him, there is a cost to that. There's a cost to that. And we see that because when God rolls out the plans for the tabernacle in Exodus, he also begins rolling out plans for something that we call the sacrificial system. Now, now Rodney taught on this last week. That's what the sermon was about. If you weren't here last week, please go catch that sermon on podcast. Super helpful. Wasn't that so good? Super helpful, super clarifying, uh, powerful. I'm not gonna get into all of that this week. All I want you to know about the sacrificial system this week is one of the main things it was doing 
is it was communicating to the Jews that getting back home with God is not gonna be easy. It's going to cost you. That's what it's saying, right? So every sacrifice was communicating that thing, and that was the thing that gave them access to home. But even with the sacrifices, right, it still wasn't quite like Eden because if home is about access and intimacy, these things were super limited in this context. Uh, So the access was limited. So remember, you've got the tabernacle. It's this rectangular thing. It's this one kind of tent situation plopped right in the middle of the people of Israel. And then you have literally millions of Jews living around it. I mean, it's hard enough for folks to get into Stonegate some mornings, right? Imagine this moment, right? Millions of Jews, one place of meeting right in, in the middle, and it's super small. And, and by the way, if you were a Jew, that, that didn't even mean much to you because you couldn't just walk into the tabernacle. You had to stay in the outer court unless you were a priest. If you were a priest, you could enter into the holy place, the the main inside portion of the building. But even if you could do that, if you weren't the high priest, you couldn't make it to the place where God actually was, the holy of holies, the back room where the Ark of the Covenant was. You couldn't go in there unless you were the high priest. And that guy couldn't even go in that room except one time a year. So, so millions of Jews, millions of God's people, one building, and the only one guy, one time a year, gets close to him. Access is limited, right? But, it's, but, but not just access, intimacy is limited. Because you know what that guy was doing, that high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement when he went in to the Holy of Holies? You know what he's doing? And here's what he wasn't doing. He wasn't going in and having a Beth Moore Bible study with God. He, he wouldn't listen to a Hillsong album just worshiping his little heart. That's not what was happening. When, when that man went into that place, he was sprinkling blood on the Ark of the Covenant. He was atoning for the people's sins. There was a, a solemnness and a sobriety and, a, and a, a, even a terror of like, I could lose my life if I don't do this right. Like this, that was what that moment felt like. It did not feel like walking with the Lord in the cool of the garden. It just wasn't the same thing. It was something, but it, the, the intimacy was limited. The access was limited. So the tabernacle was a type of home, right? but it was nothing like the access or the intimacy that they had with God at the beginning. There was still a longing for home, even with a home. Do you see that? Now, are we tracking? Are we we good? Now, eventually, the Jews make it to the land they were promised. They make it to the the land of Canaan, and, and they under the reign of King Solomon, they go from having a, a portable tabernacle to a permanent temple, right? This is what we typically think of when we think of like Old Testament Judaism, like a big, epic, ornate structure, lots of gold, sizable, massive, awesome sight to see, fixed location right there in Jerusalem. That's what they had under Solomon. But there was a problem, right? The problem was the problem hadn't changed. They just got a new building. They, it was like the same problem but a facelift because the, 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 the issue was still the same. Access and intimacy were drastically limited. So it was a means for the people of God to interact with God, but it wasn't quite home. It never felt like what they had lost. And sadly, 
maybe the saddest thing of, of this, this whole moment is despite God's provision for a temple, despite him saying, I wanna give you a rendezvous point, I wanna interact with you, despite him doing that, the people of God stiff-armed God again and again, just like they did in Eden. And so you see degradation over, over generation after generation to where eventually when you make it to 586 BC, the Babylonians come in and they destroy the temple of God, remove the people of God from the land of God, the Ark of the Covenant goes missing, and all of a sudden, you have this haunted moment where all is lost, where that, that giant question mark starts showing up again. Where, where's home? We have, we have nothing. Where's my, where's my point of contact with God, right? And now, 70 years they're in exile. Some of them start trickling back after 70 years, and they begin to rebuild the temple under Nehemiah and that type of thing, but there's still no ark there. And the temple is so small and, and meager compared to what they had that the elders, it said, wept when they saw what was constructed. Right, so, so you get this sense, like by the time you come to the end of your Old Testament, there's just, it's just not right. Do you feel that? It's not, it seems like no matter what happens, we just can't get home. Do you feel like that ever? Like, I know we're not in this world, but this, this is for us, too. Like, I've, I have felt like this so much in my life, where it's like, I just, there's some disconnect here where I'm not, I'm not meeting with you in a, in a meaningful way. I don't feel connected with you. I don't, I don't feel settled like there's a home. And for, for me, I, I just find that, like, I'm so tempted to just do my own sacrificing now, Right? So a, a little bit more of my own blood spills. So I can work a little bit harder, maybe get God to love me a little bit more, like me. Like, I just wanna feel like we're okay, and so I'm doing all of this temple work myself, but I just don't feel like, do you feel like that ever? Where it's just, I mean, can somebody just admit, like, man, I just don't, I don't feel connected to him. And, and I even come to a place like this, but if we're honest with ourselves, so many of us, we just don't feel like we have the person. We might have the place, but we, we lack the person. And home is a person more than it's a place. If that's you, if you feel like that at all, can I just tell you, you're in really good company today? Like you are, like, the, like we all, it, just, we all wrestle with this. And, and you're in good company with, with the people of God here in the Old Testament. They, they were longing for a home, like to be settled with their God. I have good news for you today. If, if that's you, if that's what you experience, you're tired of like the distance that you experience with God, God hears you. He hears that ache, he hears that longing, and he has done something about it. He has done something about it because in the midst of this heaviness and burden, as the Old Testament closes its doors, a baby's born. And we read about him from a man named John in the Gospel of John, chapter one. Listen to what he says. It's extraordinary. He opens with this. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. 
and without him was not anything made that has been made. Does that language sound familiar to anybody? What does that remind you of? You say it, we can be a little charismatic in here. What, what is it? Genesis. It's not, he starts the beginning of his gospel with the same words that begin your Bible, in the beginning. And then all things were made through him. Sounds exactly like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and then what does God do next in creation? Think about it. What does he do next? He commands light. Right? Let there be light. And what does John echo in verse four? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you see what John's doing here? He is, he is calling your minds back to Genesis. He's revisiting Genesis, God, creation, light, and then, and then this, John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now you might not see it right away if you're in the ESV translation, but that word dwelt right there is the Greek word skenu. And that word, you know what it literally translates to? Tabernacle. Tabernacle. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Do you see what's happening? Everything before this moment was a shadow of this moment. Eden, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the temple, they were all billboards, they were signposts. If, if you've been so frustrated, you're reading your Old Testament, you're like, what does this have to do with that and how does it connect to what I'm reading in the New Testament? Please hear this, these were all signposts. What does a signpost do? It exists to point you to the destination and when Jesus came to earth, God was finally proclaiming, there's the destination. Right here, this baby, this person, Jesus, he is the one that every sign is pointing to. Every constructed tent and temple and tabernacle is all pointing right to him. The ultimate place where sinful people meet with the holy God is not in a tent, he's saying. It's not in a uh, a tabernacle. It is in a person. Home is a person, literally here. Jesus is the rendezvous point between you and God. The, The one every building has been pointing to, every tent has been hinting at, every sacrifice has been alluding to, it's been this man, Jesus, our tabernacle. But see, here's the beautiful thing. He wasn't just a tabernacle for us. He was also the sacrifice for us. And when he gave his life on the cross, he was satisfying all of the demands of the sacrificial system. Now, why did he do it? 1 Peter 3.18 makes sense of the whole agenda of God sending Jesus. Write this down, 1 Peter 3.18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous purpose, that he might bring us to God. Jesus came to give you a home again, and it's in him. 
It's in him, church. If you feel like you've been looking for home your whole life and you haven't found it, you need to look to Jesus this morning. If you've been unsettled your whole life and you just haven't felt like you have it figured out with God, you need to look to Jesus this morning. He is, he is the one who came to connect you with the one you were made for. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. That's what this verse means. He's the tabernacle and he did it with his very life. And as, and as if that wasn't good enough, right? As if that wasn't like over the moon, I gotta fall on my face and worship him right now. It, the New Testament keeps going. It doesn't just stop there because after Jesus dies, he resurrects. And after he resurrects, he ascends to the right hand of God. And the people of God are now like, did home just go away? What, we don't know. And they find themselves in Acts chapter two and then everything changes because the tabernacle comes in to them. The Spirit of God descends on those disciples in that upper room, fills them with himself. The living Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, Scripture calls it, fills up these people, and now every person who trusts in Jesus as their Savior is filled with the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 1. And do you know what the Bible calls that group of people who are filled with the Spirit of Jesus? There's a word that Peter uses and Paul uses all throughout the New Testament. Do you know what it calls him? A temple. Calls us a temple. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, the exact same language Exodus 25 uses. The Holy Spirit fills every person who trusts in Jesus, which means every Christian in this room is both individually and corporately the temple of God. God is back together with man inside your chest. So, so, so watch the progression. If you wanna make sense of this whole book, this whole Bible, if, if, if it's never come together until now, here's the progression. Eden, tabernacle, temple, Jesus, Jesus in us. That's the whole movement of scripture. You know the whole Bible now. That's the whole point of it all. Jesus in us. Now what on earth do we do with this truth? What do we do? It's so radical. What do we do with this? Four applications. If the temple of God is truly inside of us, here's what it means. Four applications. Everywhere is sacred. Everywhere is mission. Everywhere is access. And everywhere gets better. Everywhere is sacred. Everywhere is mission. Everywhere is access. And everywhere gets better. The first one, everywhere is sacred. What do I, what do I mean by that? Uh, there's a sign on, on the door right outside this, this room when you come in. I wonder if anybody saw it. It's right above both of the doors right there. Did anybody uh, catch what it says? Does anybody know what that sign says? It 
I'm sorry? Auditorium. Thank you, Landon. Auditorium. Notice, it doesn't say sanctuary. That was on purpose. We thought about this. Why doesn't it say sanctuary? Because you're the sanctuary. This building is not magic, y'all. Like, we don't come in and, like, expect to see, like, a, a, a cloud covering the state. Well, we do, but that's the, that's the fog machine, okay? <laughs> it's, not, it's not the spirit, okay? The, the spirit is in you. The temple is you guys. It's us. So, so there is nothing more sacred about coming into the walls of Stonegate than there is coming into your car to drive here on 287. Do you see that? It, or, or you being with your girlfriend or your boyfriend on Friday, or you being at work on Monday. Every one of those places is sacred if the temple is in you. Now listen, I'm not downplaying gathered worship. We need this. We, the Bible commands this moment. I'm not downplaying gathered worship. I'm just elevating scattered worship. We worship not just here, but everywhere. Everywhere we go, we take the temple with us, which means everywhere is sacred. And some of us need to recalibrate our minds to that truth and not over-glorify this moment. And we need to start actually boasting in the outside moments as well. Those are just as sacred. Number two, everywhere is mission. Everywhere is mission. Think back for a moment. What was the function of the temple? Go, go back in your minds, what was it doing? Well, it was, we've said this a lot, it was the rendezvous point between God and sinful man. That's what it was. Now think about what that means for the New Testament to call us the temple. What does that mean? It means that Christ is now choosing to use you and me to be the primary place where God meets man. That's what that means. We are, if you wanna think about it like this, the outpost of heaven on earth. The church is so important. We are the outpost of heaven on earth now, which means we have to start thinking of ourselves as on mission everywhere because we are the touch point with the world for the gospel of Jesus. We are. Now, I wonder if you've thought about this. Did you know that your next door neighbor lives next door to the temple of God? Now, don't lead with that when you're talking to them. <laughs> but it's for you to know, right? That, that, that's true, and, and my question is this. Are they gonna smell the aroma of Christ when they're with you, like they would have at the temple? Are, are they gonna hear about the sacrifice of the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world when they're with you? Is that gonna be what the, the flavor and the timbre of your conversations feel like? Is it gonna feel to them like they're near in proximity to Jesus when they're with you? That's what the invitation is once we realize that the temple is inside of us. Everywhere becomes mission. We have to take it seriously. We're the outpost of heaven to the world. 
Number three, everywhere is access. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you told a Jew in the Old Testament that right now the spirit of Yahweh, the one that hovers over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, that one dwells inside of you, that guy would have taken a step back and waited for your face to melt off like an Indiana Jones, right? (laughs) Because nobody gets that close to God and lives. He would have known that. No one can do that. But you can. You can because Jesus Christ atoned for your sin once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. You can. You can walk into the Holy of Holies anytime you want because there's no veil there. Hebrews 10 tells us that when the body of Jesus was torn, that the veil was torn. We have access because of the death of Christ for us. And my question is, are you exploiting that access? That's what you have, church. Are you sucking it dry? Are you drinking every drop from the cup that is access to God? What a nightmare that if at the end of your life you will know more about the Cowboys starting lineup than you do about your heavenly father. What will you say to him on that day? You just weren't accessible? You won't say that. What a tragedy it would be if the altar we run to is the altar of Instagram when all the while our God sits there like A.W. Tozer says, waiting to be wanted. Exploit your access to God. Drink the cup dry. You have more access to God than any human being in history. Are you leveraging it? Are you enjoying him now? Please, don't waste it. I'm I'm preaching to me too. This is me too. I don't want to waste my time on silly things. I want him. I want him. And finally, everywhere gets better. Everywhere gets better. I want to leave you with this final thought because I, I promised you I would make it to Revelation and I want to make good on my promise. In Revelation... The, the, the very last couple chapters of your Bible, in Revelation 21, in fact, we are told about our future. We're told about what's coming for the saints. It refers to it as the new heavens and the new earth. It refers to it as the new Jerusalem, the city that comes down from heaven to earth. And in this really interesting moment in Revelation 21, an angel is talking, and he's giving a strange bit of detail about this particular place the New Jerusalem. And I'm gonna read it for you and just listen, it'll be on the screen for you too. Revelation 21, 15 and 16. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height 
are equal. Now, if you're going to end the Bible on a crescendo, why do you end with like architectural measurements? It's like a, it's, it, it, it should strike you as a little bit odd that this is one of the closing chapters of your Bible. It ends with square footage dimensions. That, that this, this new Jerusalem is coming down and it's 12,000 stadia, which is about 1,400 miles, by the way, by, by 1,400 by 1,400. So just to give you some perspective, uh, this is a really big space, right? This is uh, from here to Calgary, Alberta, Canada, from here to 200 miles off the coast of Los Angeles, California, and from here up into space, knocking satellites out of the sky. So literal or figurative, the point is it's massive, right? You see that? It's massive. But what else is it? What else is it? It's a cube. It's a cube. It's, it's 12,000 stadia by 12,000 by, by 12,000. Well, who cares about that, Jimmy? Why are, you, why are you bringing that up? What's the only other cube in your entire Bible? There's only one time a cube is even mentioned in your entire Bible. You know what it is? The Holy of Holies in the temple. 30 cubits by 30 cubits by 30 cubits. The only other cube in the Bible is the place, the one place in the world at that time where man and God could commune. And what John's saying in Revelation is there is a day coming when the whole place you live in will be the Holy of Holies. That every square inch of every square mile will be you walking in perfect access to God. Imagine getting the cool of the garden, walking with God every day back. Eden is now back. What you're experiencing now imperfectly, and we are, right? We, it, we groan within ourselves, Romans 8 tells us. Like we're aching for something more. There's, there's an already but not yet happening. I have him, he's home in me, but it's just not quite there yet. There's a day coming when it will be complete. It will be perfect, and every square inch of where you're gonna dwell forever with God will be with him face to face, enjoying the company of Jesus forever. Let that strengthen your legs, church, when you're weak, when you're feeling like, I just can't, I can't, I can't connect, and where, is this really as good as it gets? It gets better. Everywhere one day will get better. I saw no temple in the city, verse 22, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. When you stumble in sin like I do every day and you wonder if it's ever going to get better for me, remember a final home is coming. We're free from sinning. We shall see thy lovely face clothed then in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransom soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. Sing. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. 
Take my ransom soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. Jesus, we love you and we want more of you. And we have your company now, but will you give us more and more? And will you help us exploit all of the access you've given to us? God, we want more of you. And thank you that our story doesn't end with this only. It ends with us face to face with God forever. Thank you, God. May you be glorified in our worship May we live a life on mission as temples of the living God to a lost and dying world. We love you. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.